Well, greetings, everybody. It is good to see you today. And also welcome to our friends at our Whitehall campus on Yearling Road, where we really enjoy being. And uh, we're going to be today in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible or a device, you can go there. You can pull up uh, our app if you'd like and uh, take notes on the app. Or out of the, uh, you can take the study guide out of your worship folder. Like some of you, I have a gym membership, and uh, mine is over at Planet Fitness over on the other side, and I try to get over there about two or three times a week, and when I go, I have my little routine that I do. Maybe you have that as well. It involves some stretching, and then some strength training, followed by a good cardio workout. Since I still play tennis, I like to think I'm in good enough shape to uh, go a couple hours and not conk out out there. So I always finish up my workout uh, either on the elliptical or on the treadmill. And uh, you can really get going on that thing. I mean, you can work up a big time sweat and burn a lot of calories. I watched my heart rate go up to 120, 130, 140, 150, I even hit 160 last time. And when I'm on there, I'm expending lots of energy. I'm sweating up a storm. It's pouring down my face. But you know what? Even though I'm giving it everything I've got, pumping as fast as I can, I'm actually going nowhere. It's true. 30 minutes of running, zero forward progress. I look around when I'm done, and I'm in the exact same place as I was when I started, and the same old fella huffing and puffing next to me. Well, you know what? From a certain perspective, life can seem that way sometimes, too. Lots of effort, but no actual progress. Expending tons of energy, but feeling like you're in the same place that you've always been. I think when people are in a certain mindset, life can seem like nothing more than a weary, monotonous routine. Kind of like being on a treadmill. Well, we are studying the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which I'm finding to be a pretty ambitious endeavor. One commentary on, on it I'm reading said, if you're preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, you need prayer. <laughs> it's probably the most challenging book of the Bible to preach through. Basically, Ecclesiastes is a collection of journal entries from a man who decided to conduct a very, very unique experiment. The man believed in God, but he decided to purposely set aside much of his worldview, much of his theistic framework to try to get inside the head of a secular humanist person and, and see things from that perspective. He wanted to find out what satisfaction life might hold, who gives little thought to God and does not believe in eternity. So really... The writer wanted to evaluate the humanist worldview, but from inside of it, instead of, you know, lobbing grenades from the outside. And so Ecclesiastes shows us this man's search for the good life from a secular perspective, an earthbound, purely horizontal viewpoint and perspective. And it, the book contains his observations, his reflections, his musings, his evaluations and his conclusions. And in the end, the author, 
who we believe to be Solomon, King Solomon, who refers to himself as the preacher, in the end, he aims to tell the truth about human existence apart from God. I believe it was Henry David Thoreau who wrote this, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. You ever heard that quote before? And I think in Ecclesiastes, we're going to discover why that may very well be true. Now, last week, we did kind of a general overview, an introduction to this book, but we're going to really get into the meat of it today in chapter 1. And so in this opening section, we're going to see a couple of things. First, we're going to see the secular humanist preacher expressing his weariness over the pointless futility of life and of human existence. And then we're going to see that same secular humanist preacher looking back retrospectively, sharing his conclusion after searching for the good life apart from God. So that's kind of where we're going today. I want to read this first section that kind of describes a wearisome treadmill kind of existence, okay? The book begins like this. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and then hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Well, such a cheery outlook, right? Just so uplifting and encouraging. (laughs) And we've said at first glance, this could seem to be just the pessimistic viewpoint of a guy who'd been through some really hard stuff and was depressed. You know, if if indeed this was Solomon, maybe one of his 700 concubines broke up with him or something. And that's why he has such a grim view of life. But as we join the preacher on his journey, we're going to discover... But this is actually not that. Instead, what we have here is his very level-headed assessment of what human existence really is like apart from God after thoroughly investigating it himself. This is how the secular humanist, humanist ought to feel about things. If he's honest about his worldview and if he takes it out to its logical end, its logical conclusion... You know, without God and without eternity and no life after the grave. So this week, you know, sometimes when we hear the report of yet another school shooting, where yet even more students 
lose their lives in yet another senseless act of violence, a horrific thing. Many people find themselves asking, how can this keep happening? How, how did we as a country get here? How can someone, a kid even, get to the point where he just doesn't care anymore and he decides to go on a rampage like that? And that's a very natural question to ask. But maybe the better question to ask is, why are we really surprised by this? In a culture that's become increasingly secular, where God has been pushed out, God has been marginalized, atheism is on the rise, and the concept of absolute truth is scoffed at and made fun of, why are we shocked that there are more and more individuals coming to feel that, that their lives are pointless, that other people's lives are worthless? I wonder, could this worldview also account for the rapid rise in suicides in recent years, the opioid addiction epidemic that we face? This, the way I think, I'm not sure that these phenomena that are growing and increasing in our land should really be such a mystery to us. When people get to the place where they believe that their existence is devoid of any ultimate meaning, that life has no point, then any number of paths can appear to offer a viable alternative for people looking to numb that sense of hollowness, that sense of emptiness on the inside. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think it's worth thinking about. Just as an aside, it's always seemed kind of ironic to me, looking back, that you'd go to your ninth grade biology class where you were taught that human beings all evolved from lower life forms and your ancestors basically crawled out of primordial soup scum. And then the bell would ring and you'd head down the hall to psychology class where you were told that we all need to have higher self-esteem. What? They just told us down there that we're just an accident. The end result of a series of mutations. The end product of time and random chance. Higher self-esteem, really? By the way, do you know where true self-esteem really comes from? Self-esteem comes from God-esteem. Did you know that? Self-esteem arises from honoring God, from embracing a theistic worldview, where human beings are seen as creations of an infinitely powerful, supremely holy creator God who made us in his image, which gives all of us innate value and worth. Above that of a monkey or an ant or a tree or a rock. And also that means that this life is not all there is since he made us in his image. That means we're, we're all going to exist throughout eternity like our creator. There is life beyond this life. Lots of it. When even smart kids, thoughtful kids take the secular humanistic worldview that they've been, they've been taught, when they take it out to its logical end, it's no wonder they act like they do sometimes. There's no escaping the conclusion of that worldview that human life has little actual value. Ethics are situational, right? Morality is relative. Human existence is ultimately pointless. And the logical outlook of all that then is despair and futility. 
But people can't live like that. People can't live every day in a sea of despair, and so they look for ways to cope somehow, right? Or to make their mark, or to act out in protest, or to escape by numbing that sense of emptiness. And they do things. The main truth that the preacher wants to convey in this opening section is this. Viewed from a purely under-the-sun perspective, We've talked about that, right? Just that horizontal perspective. Viewed from that perspective, human existence can seem pretty pointless and futile. I mean, he starts just by flat out saying it. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word, as we saw, means empty, futile, hollow, pointless, fleeting, meaningless. And he repeats it. That, 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 that's for emphasis. It's like super empty, over-the-top meaningless. Oh, how utterly empty everything is when viewed through a secular, minus-God set of lenses. That's what he's saying. And it's interesting to me, in verse 3, he asks the pointed question, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that sounds very similar to a question that Jesus would pose Centuries later, remember this one? What does it profit a man if he should gain the entire world and lose his own soul? What actual advantage, what real gain, what lasting reward will there really be for the one who toils away all of his days only to lose his soul in the process and then he dies and leaves everything he acquired to somebody else? What gain is there? I think it's a question worthy of being considered. And then we see the preacher illustrating his view of the other futility of life under the sun with a bunch of examples. As he looks around and observes life under the sun, he sees what he views as a bunch of meaningless monotony and unending repetition. Did you notice that? In life and in nature and in history... First, he talks about the repetitious passing of generations, where people come and go, and one generation comes, and then it's eclipsed by another generation, none of whom leave much of a permanent mark or a memory. Of course, in our day, Ancestry.com is trying to counter that effect, right? But seen through one set of lenses, it sure can look like just an unending parade of people coming and going and coming and going. What's the point of that, he asks. And then he talks about the cycles of nature, the monotonous cycles of nature, like the daily circuit our sun makes in the, up in the sky. Rising and setting, rising and setting, day in, day out, day in, day out. And the swirling winds going round and round endlessly. Yet another series of high-pressure systems and low-pressure systems colliding to create yet another weather front coming through. And then there's the unending, what's known as the hydrologic cycle. And he talks about it here. In which the rivers pour into the oceans, but the oceans never fill up. Why? Because the water condenses and it's collected, the moisture is collected up in the clouds which once again pour down rain and that cycle starts all over. Now, 
from my perspective, these are wonderful things, right? Wonderful routines of nature established by a good God. And they sustain life, and I'm very glad for them. And there's other passages of Scripture that celebrate these things. But, but here, the preacher's point is that when you're looking for ultimate meaning in life from a purely horizontal vantage point, minus God, then these things can appear to just be these monotonous, cyclical routines that are never done, they're never full, they're never complete. Just a wearisome cycle of unending repetition. And then he mentions that, that never-ending, insatiable curiosity that human beings have. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So not only is nature never satisfied or finished, he says, but the same is true of us human beings. It's especially true of our appetites. It's never enough, right? Man's quest for more knowledge, more and more knowledge, never ends. Every answer only raises what? More questions. Or for us, we could say that every web page has another link to go to. It's unending. You can spend years researching your favorite topic, and there will still be more to learn. You'll never get to the end. You'll never go, oh, I now know every single thing about this topic. <laughs> the human appetites for knowledge and for adventure for seeing stimulating sights and hearing pleasant sounds, for experiencing sensory pleasure, for hearing words of validation and affirmation. These appetites are insatiable, right? I mean, when does anyone ever truthfully say, enough encouragement, enough affirmation, I'll never need any more for the rest of my life? You ever hear that? I mean, most people, are, if they want to appear that way, they're really like, Okay, a little bit more is fine. Bring it on. Who says, enough love already? I mean, you told me at our wedding that you love me. I don't ever need to hear those words ever again. Nobody says that. How about our physical ap appetite? Oh, that dinner was so satisfying that I had last night. I should never, ever, ever have to ever eat another meal again in my entire life. I'm completely, permanently satisfied. You can say the same about the sexual appetite. And he talks about the eyes never being satisfied. And I, just the culture we live in, I think of how viewing pornography promises so much. But whoever says, okay, now that I've seen that one image, I'm good. I'm satisfied. I'll never want to view another porn video ever again. All my desires have been permanently satisfied. No, 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 no. We know it doesn't work like that. We want more. There's truth in what Solomon has observed about human beings. It's never enough. And to him, the mindset that he's in, that's ultimately just pointless. Because we just keep going back through the same old cycles again and again and again and again. And then he bemoans the lack of any new avenues of satisfaction and pleasure, right? Verse 9, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it's said? See, this is new. It's already been in the ages before us. 
And we read that, and maybe we can forgive Solomon for being so cynical, because of course, back in 1000 BC, he'd never seen an iPhone 10. He never dabbled around on Instagram. He never worn virtual reality goggles and experienced that. He certainly didn't know about wingsuit base jumping or space travel. But I'm not sure this is just the jaded view of an ancient dude who, who didn't live in an era of much creativity or much invention. Certainly he was off in his statement here if we look at specifics. But if we look at general broad categories of human endeavor, then I think he was actually right on. I mean, think about smartphones and think about Instagram. Aren't they just the latest iteration of an old, ancient human desire for deeper social connection? I mean, that's been around for a long, long time. Virtual reality is just a modern avenue for experiencing sensory thrill. That's been around for a long, long time. Um, I mean, I like wingsuit proximity-based jumping. Get on YouTube sometime. It's cool stuff. And, and it might seem to be a relatively new thing, but, but mankind's thirst for adventure and his desire to fly like a bird, that's been around for thousands of years. And so in that sense, it really could be said that there is nothing new, not really, under the sun. What has been will be. And then finally, he points out something that many of, many of us are keenly aware of when he laments the disturbing shortness of human memory. Yeah? <laughs> Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things. Yeah, no kidding. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. We too quickly forget. And not just birthdays and anniversaries, which we often forget, but really important things too. Isn't it easy to forget significant events, for example, in our nation's history? Isn't it easy to forget the lessons that should have been learned from the Civil War, or from World War I or World War II or Pearl Harbor? It's easy to lose sight of 9-11, what happened there and the lessons that we should have learned from that. We're also prone to forget the people who made significant contributions to our, to our nation, to our city, to our families, to our own lives, to our faith. I think it's easy to forget Jesus in the midst of our busy lives. You know, we're busy going to and fro and doing this and that and shuttling the kids all over creation and work and, and PTO meetings and this and that. It's easy to forget about the Lord. That's why it's just a healthy thing to come to church every week, to be reminded of the Lord and of His amazing grace and His love for us. And I guess we could say His unmatched contribution to history and to the church and to our lives. Well, as I said, all of this futility, all of this pointless routine, all of these disheartening realities that the preacher had observed drove him to embark on an expedition, a quest, to find out what makes life really worth living. And 
He conducted a search for a truly meaningful, full existence. Before he gets into sharing the details of all that he did, all the paths he went down, he first looks back on the whole experience in retrospect and he summarizes his findings. He gives us his conclusion. Really, he just restates what he said earlier. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in, Jeru- Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart, this was a deliberate effort now, to seek and to search out, to investigate, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. Here's the conclusion. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. I can't grasp it. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. A couple interesting things that stand out to me here. First, this was to be an experiment, he says, guided by wisdom. You see that? I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom. So Solomon aimed to hold on to his his theistic worldview while searching out avenues of happiness. And he abandoned himself to the search, but he did not abandon God. We see that in verse 13 where he mentions God. He just simply set aside much of his theistic worldview and framework for a season while he entered into this experiment. So yeah, he's climbing into the shoes of a secular man. He's going to go out and explore things. He's going to experience everything he can. He's going to investigate and ruminate and evaluate. That's what we find in Ecclesiastes. But all the while, he's holding on to his faith like an open window running in the background. What he says here, though, is, as I said, in retrospect, it's after the experiment is completed and he lets his final evaluation leak out right here at the beginning. In essence, he says, I saw it all, I did it all, and my conclusion is that it's all empty, it's all pointless, it's as futile as chasing the wind. Life is crooked, but all of our learning can't straighten things out. There are pieces missing, but no amount of recounting and recounting and recounting will add them back into the picture Seeking for satisfaction in life, but confining your search only to the material world, only to what you can see and observe, only to what's under the sun, in the end, it's going to lead only to despair. It's like fishing in a bathtub. You won't find here what your soul really yearns for. That was his conclusion. Now, I want to turn a corner a little bit here because as a pastor, I want to say something to us that I, I hope many of you already believe, but maybe, maybe this is a new thought. There is an antidote to living this way. There is an antidote to living this frustrating, pointless kind of existence that the preacher has been describing here. And let's be honest, sometimes even as Christians, we can lapse into this and and almost become practical atheists. There's been times in my own life when I felt my life was kind of monotonous, kind of futile, kind of pointless, an unending cycle, right, of getting up, eating breakfast, going to work, coming home, watching the news, going to bed, getting up the next day to what? 
do it all over again. And at those moments when I've felt my life kind of degenerating into a mindless routine, I've had to jolt myself awake and remind myself of something, namely, my purpose. My purpose for being here. And that's what I believe the Bible holds out as an alternative to this kind of pointless existence that Solomon's been bemoaning here. Having a clear sense of purpose and, 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 and a compelling, a gripping sense of purpose that, that grabs me. You've heard the phrase, right? Living on purpose. Life on purpose. That's what will bump you off the treadmill. Living on purpose. That's, that's what can turn the mundane routines of life, which we all have, into Adventures with God. Adventures with God. Having a clear sense of purpose, so strong that it has you in its grip. And I want to talk with you for a few moments about this very thing. Because when I think of living on purpose, I think of getting very clear on two aspects of this. Big purpose and personal mission. So let me talk about those two things. Let me talk about big purpose for a minute. Big purpose is... Big. It's overarching. It's transcendent. It's universal. It's designed into the very fabric of the whole universe. It's why anything exists at all. It's why we're all here. Big purpose comes from God, and I want you to see if you can pick up on our big purpose from these scriptures, okay? Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, this is the Lord speaking, whom I created for what? My glory, whom I formed and made. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You know this verse. So whether you eat or drink, that's about as mundane as you can get in life, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This great benediction in Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Which means so be it. Yes. Ephesians three twenty one. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love how Paul. The apostle put it in Philippians 1.20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. See, he was, he was mulling over the prospect of having to die for his faith. I don't expect to be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be, it says honored, Magnified, it says in the King James, the word, Greek word is mega luno, mega luno, means to magnify, and we know there are two ways to magnify. You can magnify like a microscope or magnify like a telescope. A microscope makes really, really tiny things look bigger than they are, but a telescope makes huge things look more like they really are. And this is magnifying Christ like a telescope. I want to live my life so that Jesus looks great because he is great. That's what Paul was saying. Whether I live or die, 
Live for His glory. Die for His glory. Die to magnify Him. You see, there's a lot of talk in our day about mission, and, and someone can adopt a personal mission for their life, but if they don't first embrace the big purpose, then they run the risk of expending lots of energy to accomplish a mission that's not tied to anything bigger than themselves. And that's ultimately going to prove to be unsatisfying because we were all made for more than that. We were made for something big. And so everybody on the planet, I believe, is faced with an important choice. Will I embrace the big purpose for which I was created to make God look great by my living, even by my dying, because He is great? Will I allow that to grab my heart, or will I choose to be in the grip of some lesser purpose? Will I do what I was made for or latch on to something else? Now, I like to use uh, I like to use a mixer to illustrate this point. Now, this is a mixer, and uh, it was invented by somebody as a creator, right? Some design engineer person made this, and it has a purpose. An overarching purpose, which is to what? <laughs> mix. To mix ingredients in a bowl, right? Cake mix, waffle batter, other things. And when this mixer is used in accordance with its designated purpose, mixing ingredients in a bowl, this is a happy mixer. It's a joyful mixer because it's being used in accordance with how it was designed, what it was made for. Does that make sense? But if I walked up to you one day, if I walked up to somebody in this room and I said, hey, you know what? You need a haircut. Let me help you out. Let me, let me bring my mixer to uh, give you a little trim there. You know what? This mixer would not be a happy mixer anymore, not to mention you. <laughs> It can be harmful when things are not used in alignment with their purpose. Does this make sense? Listen, we all have a designated purpose in life given to us by our Creator. And when we are doing what we were made to do, we're happier. Like the happy mixer Mixing ingredients in a bowl. What it was made to do, what it was designed and created to do, you were made to glorify God. And you'll be a joyful, happier person if you align yourself with that designated purpose. Does that make sense? It's not a new thought for some of you. You'll get off the treadmill, treadmill of feeling like your life has no point to it, when you embrace with all your heart your big purpose, making God look great, glorifying Him, not you. Glorifying Him, not somebody else even. God. So that's the first decision, and it is of utmost importance. But let's go a little further. There is a specific way that God has wired you to do that, to glorify Him. And that's, I like to call, your personal mission. See, everybody can glorify God, 
But not everybody can glorify God like you can glorify God. That unique way that you can make God look great with your personality, your abilities, your experiences, your history, that's your unique personal mission, and that too is from God. Every day of your life can be filled with meaning and significance and adventure and joy when you've embraced your big purpose and when you know and are living out your personal mission. Secular writers call this personal mission by different names. Maybe you've heard of the personal hedgehog concept, other things like that. That's fine. What this personal mission is, is whatever is at the intersection of three things. Your passion, that's what you love. Your abilities and gifts, that's what you're good at, and your opportunities, and that's what people need from you. It's what would bless them, what would lift them. The intersection of your passion, what you love, your abilities, what you're good at, and your opportunities, what what this world needs from you. I would say this, the earlier in your life you can identify this, the more happy and meaningful and effective and God-glorifying the, the remaining days of your life will be. So to put these two concepts together, it could look like this. A big purpose combined with personal mission could be a statement like this. The purpose of my life is to glorify God by... A few words there. And I know a lot of people and had conversations about this with a lot of people, and Here are some of the examples that I'm aware of, just from people that I know. I exist to glorify God by inspiring wholeness in others, by facilitating helpful connections. I put people together, that's what I do. By serving the least of these, I exist to glorify God by helping others grow, by praying people into freedom, by interceding for others. I exist to glorify God by correcting faulty thinking. Those are pleasant people to be around. (laughs) Or by guiding the next generation. I have a passion for the next generation that's coming up behind me. I exist to glorify God by making people feel special. One guy said, "I, I know I'm here to model godly fatherhood because there's not a whole lot of examples of that around. I'm here to break down barriers. That's how I glorify God. Or to train other people in the word of God. Or to help others exceed, push others ahead of me. Or love the outcast. I bring glory to God by loving the outcast like he does. Get the idea here? Embracing God's big purpose for your life and knowing and living out your personal mission that's tied to that purpose is the way out of a pointless, meaningless, futile life. It's what can press meaning even into mundane daily activities. It's what can get us out of bed in the morning ready to attack the day instead of just survive the day or endure the day. You know the difference, right? It can bring enormous pleasure to the God who made us, who designed us a certain way. It can bring great joy to our own hearts and certainly bless others. Who are the recipients? So I encourage you, that's why I put it on the the, uh, study guide there, to take a stab at this. Even if you've done this kind of an exercise before, I urge you to do it today. 
while we're thinking about this, while we're on the, the topic. Just think about it. What do you love to do? What are you good at? Gifted at? Other people have affirmed that in you. What is it that you have to offer that people in this world need? I've been praying that the Lord would clarify that in many, many people's hearts. Sure, this is a first pass and you'll want to review it, test it out later, refine it, revise it, but I'm hoping this little exercise will get you started on a path to deeper joy by discovering how you were designed in a unique way to glorify the Lord. Well, I'll tell you what, the absolute best example of living a life on purpose, where should we look? Yeah, let's look no further than, than our Lord, than our Savior, Jesus Christ. Talk about a man on a mission. Talk about a person with a purpose. <laughs> he embraced the big purpose, right? He was well aware of the unique way he was to bring glory to his Father. Listen to Jesus share his personal mission with other people. John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, here's my purpose, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm here to glorify my Father. And here's the specific way, Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he was about. That's what he's still about. Man, he had a clear sense of purpose. He'd embraced God's big purpose. He knew very well his personal mission of sacrificing himself to save guilty sinners. Even though it was hard, he would not be deterred. He was in the grip of this mission, wasn't he? Verse in Isaiah, I think it is, I love, it says, he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem would not be deterred, would not be derailed, would not be denied the reward of his suffering. So I thank God for that. He was the ultimate on-purpose person our Lord was, and his life was the epitome of significant, no treadmill existence for Jesus. I challenge you to follow him into that kind of living. Well, I know I've given you a lot to think about. And uh, I hope that you will think about it and pray about it. 